Hey everybody, having said that I was going to do uh, one uh, episode every couple of weeks uh, the other day, um, I suppose what I meant really by that was that I was going to do one episode, one sort of interview every couple of weeks. Um, in between I may do the odd little uh, additional episode just to address a specific issue and um, so I decided to do one of those on the basis that the other day I was listening to Sir Mark Riley being interviewed by the Home Affairs Select Committee. It was on the 14th, I believe, so a couple of days ago. I believe this was his first appearance in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee as Commissioner. I think he's been there before in his remit as Head of Counterterrorism in the past, but what I thought was really, really interesting about this is that it shows ever so clearly what an unbelievably difficult and challenging job policing is and particularly has become in the last sort of, you know, 10 plus years with uh, reduction in resources, reduction in staff and increasing demand and increasing complexity around policing. and. And what I've done is I've to save you the because uh, I'm good like that because to save you the, um, you know the the effort of actually listening to the entire thing, I've broken it up into little chunks, each lasting about I don't know, some quite short, a couple of minutes, some a bit longer, five six minutes, to kind of capture the essence of what they were discussing. Because I think for students of policing, students of contemporary policing, or people who are just sort of passionate, like me, who are quite passionate about the subject, it really, it's really, really interesting to see how he dealt with all of these different questions. Um, really, really impressive. I find him very impressive. Um, and uh, I find myself getting quite annoyed with uh, the line of questioning. Some of the questions were just... It, what what I think it shows is that, uh, in in my view, the the role of the Home Affairs Select Committee should should be to look at the efficiency and effectiveness of of policing and the the ability of the the police to keep the public safe. Uh, whereas it was very obvious that some of the members were uh, rehearsing issues that they, as constituency MPs, are clearly given quite a hard time about. So the chair of the committee was uh, Tim Lighton MP, who is a conservative, and uh, he has got a major bee in his bonnet about the disruption caused to the roads networks by the uh, anti-oil uh, protesters. That's clearly something that gives, uh, you know, his, his, he said himself that his email inboxes uh, full to overflowing, as are many of his uh, fellow Tory MPs from their more sort of wealthy constituents in the M, the areas around the M25, I suppose. And then you've got Diane Abbott, who has never been a supporter of the police, to be fair, and uh, she is just uh, rehearsing the same old, rather tired. Um, arguments around uh, the disproportionality issue of stop and search. And I thought I thought Mark Riley did a superb job in batting back 
you know, taking, you know, um, conceding, making concessions where he needed to make concessions, and uh, but pushing back quite firmly against some of Diane Abbott's more sort of ridiculous, um, broken record type um, issues around um, the policing of communities. So she's the MP for Hackney and Stoke Newington, I believe. Um, so yeah, so uh, lots of interesting stuff there about protest. And uh, yeah, I had to kind of roll my eyes when Tim Lighton was sort of seriously suggesting that the police should just rip protesters' hands off the road, presumably taking half the skin off their hands with them. Um, some interesting debate about the rights and the wrongs of whether you should just ignore these protesters who climb up onto gantries over the M25 and, and lock themselves to the gantries with a bicycle D-lock uh, round their necks. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it just goes to show what a... It really is a poison challenge. Policing is such an unbelievably political um, activity or everyone has got an opinion as to the rights and the wrongs of it. But the people who have to actually roll their sleeves up and deal with this stuff day in and day out don't have the luxury of pontificating about, uh, you know, the, the with the benefit of hindsight, which, you know, they could have done this or they could have done that. They've got to deal with it and they've got to deal with it in a way that is accountable to the courts and to case law. And, um, you know, you can uh, you can say what you like when you're sat in the in the, in Westminster in a select committee, but uh, you're not the one who's going to have to uh, go to court and get cross-examined as to why you made an arrest that the court will deem unlawful. And the person who's going to drop in the shit when you make that unlawful arrest is you. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I hope you find it instructive. I certainly did. I find it really interesting, particularly to listen to. Uh, so Mark talking about his priorities, uh, he really neatly sums up uh, a lot of the issues around excessive demand, bureaucracy uh, and a blurred and bureaucratic uh, mission. All of the things, sorry to be boring, but all of the things I talked about in my book. Anyway, right, I'll let you listen to it and see what you think. Mark, we've got obviously a very wide-ranging brief that you have and an awful lot of uh, different areas that um, the uh, committee want to question on. Perhaps I can just open up, first of all, by saying, um, why on earth did you want to come back, having escaped the Met in 2018 after a distinguished career there, and now you've come back again? Why? I realised I'm still in love with policing, I suppose, is the, is the, straightforward, um, is the straightforward answer. Policing is a critical um, public service, isn't it, in terms of um, the protection of the citizen, you can argue, is the first role of, first role of the state. And uh, the Met is a fantastic organisation with tens of thousands of great men and women who do amazing things day in and day out. Um, but it's also an organisation that needs reform, that has real challenges in terms of some individuals will let us down in terms of the way we're organised, in terms of the day-to-day -day services for the public. And I hope I've got something to contribute as a leader to helping tackle that and helping equip those 
fantastic tens of thousands to succeed better for London. So why did you not feel that in 2018 when you, when you left from mainstream policing? I, I, I spent my last four years in policing running the counter-terrorism capability nationally, which was a, a great privilege to do that at a difficult, um, difficult time. Um, I think policing has challenges of different types of crime have grown as social change has taken place. I think there's a range of factors that have increased the difficulty of the environment and we've struggled to keep pace with that and frontline officers will tell you that themselves. So after four years out of the, uh, the Met, have you found the Met in a better shape or a worse state than you left it? We're clearly, um, if you look at the reports of the inspectorates, um, they would say we're in a worse state in the sense of that we're now in an engaged process. The process described in the press as special measures an engaged process because we're not offering a good enough service to London, because we've got issues with our integrity with the officers who are letting us down. So um, we're definitely in a poorer state as a consequence of, um, let's say, a range of factors that I've mentioned. And it's our, it's our job to bounce back from that. And I, I don't start with a sort of council of despair. We've got so many people who really care about policing London who um, say do amazing things day in and day out, and they're, they're as frustrated as the public that they're not working in an institution that helps them succeed and do as good a job as they would, they would like to do. And what they do day in and day out is extraordinary. In my 93 days so far, 1,538 of them have been assaulted protecting Londoners. That's sort of indicative of the commitment and dedication, yet as an institution, we're not yet organised in a way that can meet the modern challenges where we're not just dealing with the classic crime in a public space. We have massively increasing amounts of work to do of crime that takes place largely in private, so rape, sexual assault, child abuse, etc., and the growing threats of crimes online. And it's covering those three areas, which are well laid out in the um, Home Office's um, Beating Crime Plan. Covering those three areas has created a stretch which, um, as police resources have gone down and back up again over the last decade and other pressures, have, the services struggled to keep pace with. Still too many bad apples is probably an estimate where it's institutionally vulnerable and, uh, and failing. What is causing that? So, I think the bad apples phrase is a bad one, if you don't mind me... Um, I agree, actually. Yeah. Don't, mind me, don't mind me saying so. Um, I think saying bad apples suggests the problem is just a few people over there somewhere. Um, there are some systemic issues that have allowed um, bad apples to become pockets of, uh, of, of corrupting behaviour. And I use the word corruption because I think it corrupts our integrity and, of course, for policing, integrity is our, is our foundation. What's very clear to me is that it's not pervasive, but it's widespread. So not, by not pervasive, I mean it's not the experience of every officer who's, say, every officer perhaps of colour or every female officer. It's not the experience of every one of them that they're experiencing... Um, unacceptable behaviour, racism, misogyny, etc. But there are multiple pockets across the organisation that are doing that. So it's widespread but not pervasive. And um, Dame Louise Casey's, Baroness Louise Casey's sort of um, interim report, which um, 
I asked her to bring forward and she did and that came out a few weeks ago. Um, very clear and compelling and concerning. But what that basically says, if I was to reduce it to a couple of points, would be that the systemic failings are that we've been too weak at, at confronting and identifying and confronting such behaviour. And in that weakness, there's some bias as well. So um, uh, black and female officers come off worse out of our misconduct systems than white officers. So, so we've been systemically weak at confronting it, which allows those, your phrase, bad apples to become pockets and become bigger than they ought to be. But that doesn't, so that gives me the challenge of, I have hundreds of officers who shouldn't be in the organisation. Meanwhile, I've got tens of thousands who are doing their, doing their absolute damnedest to serve London. And, and I need to sort of sort out both of those. I need to take on those toxic minority at the same time as sorting out all the issues that are necessary to enable the majority to do a better job for London because they're frustrated at what's around them. Uh, it, the, the responsibility for who is a police officer in London, but, um, in terms of removing them, the final word doesn't sit with me. Um, it sits with independent legal tribunals who don't have, a, don't have the same interest in the quality of policing in London that I would say I do. Um, that's a very unusual situation. You are holding me to account vigorously for the quality of policing in London, including its integrity. Um, it seems that's perfectly reasonable. It seems a little unfair, though, that you do that, yet yeah, I don't have these levers and I end up with officers I can't remove. And the Home Secretary seems persuaded by the principle of the argument and he's looking at whether any fast time changes to regulations can be made. So you would support a change that effectively the final decision could be made by you? Or yes, me and my senior team, exactly, yeah. yes. That, that's, that's the, and of course we should be suable in court if we get it wrong through uh, employment tribunals, all those same normal accountabilities, but um, if I was, I don't know, Chief Executive of John Lewis, I'd be able to decide who my team were, sort of, if, as um, Commissioner of the Met, I don't have quite the final say in it, which seems odd, particularly given the significance of public service and scrutiny. So very, very <laughs> roughly, if that law change were to happen tomorrow, how many officers would you sack? Um, so I've got... I don't have an ex If I had an exact number, that would imply I knew exactly. everybody who's back. But it's, it's, so I've got tens of thousands of great people and hundreds of people who shouldn't be with me. Diane Abbott. Um, you began by talking about the challenges faced by the Metropolitan Police. Obviously, one of those challenges is the Metropolitan Police's relationship with communities. You will not need me to remind you that in 1981, a Conservative government commissioned the Scarman Report. And the Scarman Report spoke at some length about the poor relationships between the police and the community, and in particular, it spoke about the disproportionate level of stop and search on black people. Are you able to tell me why 40 years later, the relationship between the police and the black community is no better, and there remains a wholly disproportionate level of stop and search on the black community. So we clearly haven't moved far enough or fast enough. I think uh, you can, whether you go back to Scarman or McPherson, uh, we, there's, there's obviously various milestones in that in that journey. Policing has. 
policing has come a long way in that time. The behaviour of the majority of officers is 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 um, far better and is fit for the standards of today. The stop and search question is a very complex question, isn't it? And we've discussed this um, discussed this before. So crime doesn't fall evenly in London, and so neither neither will stop and search. And so I don't. Uh, Stop and search won't necessarily be proportionate. It depends where, um, where the challenges are, where the victims are, and where the crime patterns are. But clearly, the way we're doing stop and search in London isn't working from a black community's perspective, regardless of the fact that most months we're seizing more than 400 weapons, and it's a critical part. Uh, over the last, um, uh, since from before COVID, the sort of serious violence we managed to bring down by, I think it's 20 or 30%, and knife crime by similar amounts. So we're making progress on that. But the way we're doing it is not working for black Londoners. And the only way we're going to change that is by a reinvestment in community policing and finding the right solutions to the crime problems in, in, in different parts of London by working with the communities to do that. And that includes with the black communities. So what you're saying is the disproportionate level of stop and search relates to the level of crime in the black community. But even allowing for that, your officers are stopping and searching the black community disproportionately. Uh, I'm sort of, I'm not sure that's the, I'm not sure that's the case. So um, I think I, I have accepted and will continue to accept that we're not getting everything right. And I have a, a minority of officers who are racist who shouldn't be in the service. So I'm not trying to pretend that we don't have things that I need to fix. But one of the things we're trying to tackle is to protect all Londoners. And sadly, um, young black men in London are 12 times more likely to be murdered than young white men. And that's data from the last de over the last decade. That's not a, a, a short-term blip. And it's bounced around different numbers. I think some years it's been 20 times. So our efforts to protect those young men and trying to stop that means we are going to put more stop and search in those areas where there's high crime. That isn't an excuse, though, for not working with communities and doing it in a way which builds trust, because clearly the way we're doing it at the moment isn't building that trust, and that is a challenge. So this is a really complicated question, isn't it, about how, how you do policing, and if it feels to communities like it's done to them rather than with them, you end up with these trust issues. I don't think the young black men you're stopping and searching would accept that you're just doing it to protect them. Um, but... You, and you also said that your officers are operating in a very challenging situation. It was challenging in 1981. We just had a riot in Brixton. But anyway, I'll move on. Has the gang's matrix outlived its usefulness? I don't think it has. So there is a point, isn't there, that the way we protect people is by targeting the most dangerous is one of the key factors. You, I think the public would expect us to be able to work out who are the most dangerous offenders and to be able to focus police efforts against those to protect the people they prey upon. That's whether that's, we do that in, with terrorist cases, we, we look at people who are most concerned about it, we, we're increasingly trying to do it with predatory sex offenders, and it's the same in gangs. It's to, spotting the sort of the men of violence who drive the violent behaviour that leads to knife crime and gun crime in London. The gang's matrix is our um, way of trying to do that, trying to have a system that does that. 
Um, we've done some work recently um, where it's become clear to us that the administration of that has some, some failings and we've taken, I think, 1,100 people off the matrix and so we've tightened its use, restricted the number of people on it. But the fundamental principle of how do we stop sort of um, people being stabbed and shot in London, part of that is about targeting the people we identify as dangerous and we will continue to do that. So you don't accept as um, Amnesty International, for instance, has said that, that it needs to be dismantled in its entirety? Um, it, it's, it's easy to make sort of, a, sort of widespread uh, sort of glib comments like that, as some of those reports sometimes do. Um, my job is to protect people in London, and the way I do it, in part, is by having officers equipped and briefed with the right intelligence to target the most dangerous or the most prolific offenders. And I will never apologise for that and will keep doing that. And even if we had twice the resources we have today by some magic wave of financial wands, the amount of policing work to do in London would still be more than the resources we have. That therefore requires targeting of effort. Targeting of effort using data and intelligence to uh, targeting against the most dangerous and prolific people, as much as targeting to provide the most protection to the most vulnerable individuals and locations. I will never apologise for that targeting that is so critical for success in policing today. And reports like that one from Amnesty International seem to have an implication that police shouldn't target effort, which is um, a, a guarantee for failure. Actually, what the report says is that stigmatising young black men on the basis of the music they listen to, their social media behaviour, or who they're associated with is completely unacceptable, but you don't accept that. Well, yeah, there's, there's several different statements in that question. Um, I, I, I don't accept that is what the Gangs Matrix do, does. Um, what the Gangs Matrix does is try and identify dangerous people so that we can focus our effort on them. And then, then just, so on this, obviously you're, you're stirring up um, a lot of historic cases and um, rightly putting scrutiny on your officers. What's this doing to morale before? Well, well sort of, um, and conversations like this, which is why I keep saying, let's remember the tens of thousands who, who, who uh, are day in and day out going out and protecting London. I think it's, it's a difficult point because they are as upset as the public are that a minority of their colleagues have, are letting them down and they they feel that they feel that deeply. There is no widespread desire to cover this up or hide this. They want these individuals dealt with because they feel, well, I'm I'm working hard. I'm working with integrity. I want these people sorted out. They're frustrated that the institution hasn't been strong enough or sharp enough to deal with it. So um, they want it dealt with. They wish the public narrative and these sort of conversations, frankly, were um, more about the good things and the good majority and what they're doing day in and day out than it was about this. Um, but they understand the need to tackle it. Effectively, we've created an environment where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, so looking at um, October and November this year, there were 755 arrests. Yeah. There were 182 charges broke, but there were nearly 12,000 police officers de deployed in that. That's extremely disproportionate to the success rate in prosecutions. 
are your officers having the training to be able to enforce the, the legalities which obviously the protesters are able to um, the, the sophistication of their operation is, is I would I would say, it's outstripping your ability to enforce. They're, they're the very law. they're very well trained. Um, if if this committee wanted a sort of private session with some of our public order commanders to go through their considerations and how they try and steer through this, I'd be very very happy to to set that up. Um, so they're they're very expert. They've got sort of immense legal knowledge because they're trying to understand all of this case law and trying to work out where they draw the line. The 12 <coughs> public orders of policing is resource intensive and it is, it's deeply concerning to me that that's 12,000 officer shifts that weren't policing London's communities because they were um, dealing with protesters in the centre of London or on the M25 or, or, or wherever. Um, and that's not taking account of some of the follow-up investigative work which allowed thousands more shifts into this, into this as well. But public order policing is resource intensive because it's about, it's about dealing with crowds of people and some of it is about moving people and it's about a gentle use of physical force. It's not all about criminal justice. So I wouldn't expect um, more, um, more than that. I mean, some of the recent legal changes that have been made have been helpful. So putting public nuisance on the statute book was helpful because it used to be a common law offence. It's now a, a, a statutory offence. And um, the more serious offenders, um, CPS have thought appropriate to charge with that more serious offence rather than obstruction of the highway and so 26 of those have been remanded in custody which I think has dampened the ardour of some of the protesters which has been helpful so those blocking the major routes that's been that's been useful um, but there's also some real practical one of the reasons it would be helpful if you wanted an operational briefing the practical operational difficulties when when someone uses it you know a bicycle d-lock you know if I say a d-lock what I mean yeah. If someone de-locks themselves by their neck to the top of a gantry above a motorway, um, then that's not a five-minute job to remove them um, without decapitation, which is clearly beyond, <laughs> beyond proportionate. Um, so actually, if you've got to angle grind a de-lock off somebody's head safely whilst working at height, um, that is a very complicated thing to do. And so even though in most of these cases the police are there in a few minutes, some of them take some time to clear. And that's, um, that's been a, a real, frankly, a real challenge for us. And because of the significance of the motorway network, that's why some of these offenders have been charged with public nuisance rather than merely highway obstruction, and it's been treated more seriously because of the, the, the um, obvious... I mean, these cases are very obviously serious disruption. I'm not pretending there's not clarity there. Why do you have to remove them? Why can't you just leave them there and let the traffic um, continue? Um, I'm completely up for that. Hi the highways, um, that's, highways agency feel there is a safety risk, um, and I, and that's that's their call. And I can I'm not criticising. I can understand their call because they're concerned. I think probably more about drivers being distracted yeah. than they are about the individuals. And that's a they have all the expertise on driver distraction on motorways, and if that's their call that it's dangerous, that's then so be it. I mean, I. I would love to ignore all these characters, but it's not always possible. Well, that's, that's very interesting. So, so far you blame Parliament and the highways agents. No, 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 so no, no so I didn't blame them. I said that's their decision. It wasn't my decision, but I also said I'm not criticising them for it because I can understand the distraction factor. That's a big concern for them.
Do you feel restrained in picking somebody up who has glued his or her hands to the tarmac? Um, whereas in France, they just seem to pick them up and whether a bit of tarmac is still attached to their hand or not is, is the lookout of the protester rather than of the police officer. So, yeah, our advice is that we need to use sort of um, solvent remo removers for the glue rather than on the basis that reduces the harm done to them. I, I, I understand... Whose advice? Whose advice is that? Um, just legally in terms of what we're, what's reasonable force and what we're allowed to do, that's our, that's our advice. But it's a, I, I will, I'll always go and reflect on it. But the, sort of, the, the law is about using minimal force and if, if there is a way within a few minutes to remove somebody without causing significant harm to their hands, then, then we're expected to do that. And I, I understand, I mean, you're obviously massively frustrated by it. I'm not sort of, I'm not advocating this as a, as a sort of perfect solution. I'm just advocating the, the legal and practical context we work in. Well, I, as many MPs, have been massively frustrated because it takes up a lot of uh, our email boxes and we get a lot of uh, flat for it. You're massively frustrated because it's diverting a lot of your officers from, from catching uh, criminals and, and keeping the public uh, Completely. Uh, uh, safe. Um, I think we want to talk about workforce now, Dan Abbott. Thank well, you. just on the workforce, I wanted to ask whether you know um, what proportion of black and ethnic minority officers there are in the Met at every level, not just rank and file police officers, but in management going all the way up to you. And if you don't know, maybe you could write and tell the committee. Um, we do, but with many ranks, I can't do them off the top of my head, but I was happy to, happy to write to you. One of the things I have, um, we've, since, I've, um, uh, since I've started as commissioner, one of the things I've seen, we've had um, a couple of promotion rounds at different levels in the organization. And one of the things to look at, of course, is are um, black officers and female officers doing at least proportionately well in those promotion processes. So there's, I know, 20% of the eligible people are um, black officers, are 20% of the successful people black officers, etc. And the two processes I've seen since I started, that those um, proportions have been at least proportionate, if not slightly better. So, which is, which is good to see. I wanted to go back um, to rebuilding uh, community trust in, in the police. Um, what makes you think that you can do what no commissioner has been successful in doing in 40 years, which is improving the relationship between the police and the community and also doing something about the disproportionate level of stop and search of the black community? You, you seem to have said there's a disproportionate level of stop and search because black people are more criminal. I think you'll find... I didn't say that, that at all. I didn't that say that at all. That isn't a very persuasive argument. That's, that, this is why we need, to, we need to be able to have a sensible conversation. That last comment is not what I said and yeah. is not what I said and is, is, is a little mischievous, if you don't mind me saying so. What I'm, what I'm saying is we have, to, we have to look at issues in the round and it is... It is not fair that different, that different crime types fall differently in London. And um, if we're to tackle issues like the disproportionate murder of young black men, 
that requires working in black communities in a different way. Now, I'm not, what I'm not trying to do is to say we've got everything right. I'm not trying to suggest that every bit of our stop and search is right, because it clearly isn't. I am saying it's a valuable tactic. I'm saying unless we as the police can build community policing in a way where we can work with communities to, to, to wrestle with both how do we deliver stop and search in a way that is both effective at reducing crime and also builds community trust. If we can't have that, and what other things can we do together, police and communities and other agencies, to reduce the risk of crime in a particular area? If we can't have that conversation, then we can't succeed. And it's, it is really difficult and really sensitive st um, um, stuff, I know. And there's lots the police needs to do better, I'm not pretending otherwise. But that, that's the thing I'm trying to illustrate here. And my first question was, what makes you think that you can improve these matters when the issues in relation to rebuilding community trust have been the same over 40 years since the Scarman report? So I, I, we clearly, it's clearly not good enough at the moment, but I don't accept that it's been the same for 40 years. There's been um, big improvements in policing in many, many respects over that, in many, over that period of time. And um, trust at certain times has, has gone up. It hasn't stayed level. It hasn't fallen back over that period of time um, evenly. If I look at sort of the trust and confidence data in London over the, over the last four years, it has fallen um, fallen sharply for all communities, and some black communities are towards the lower end of the range, depending on which demographics you which demographics you look at, which is which is uh, obviously of of great um, of great concern. But so it's not it's not an even picture over that period of time, and it's not accurate to say it hasn't improved. But it clearly hasn't improved. So. I, but it clearly hasn't improved enough. And um, I think in a world of um, more scrutiny and greater expectations, our progress hasn't been fast enough. And that has to be the, the only conclusion you come to looking at the data is that's the reality of it. Now, I'm not going to personalise this to me. Um, I'm responsible as commissioner. But to say, to, the, the inference in your question is, are, are you a, I know, are you sort of a, the most amazing individual who's going to sort this on your own. Of course, it's never going to be on well, my I'm own. I'm not asking you whether no, you're no, amazing. No, no, no. I'm uh, asking you, how can you change what hasn't been changed in 40 years? So, so we, as a team, can change it because we are, the thing I'm most committed to is community policing. That has to be at the centre of this. Policing, the, the, the unique British invention is policing by consent, policing that is rooted in communities. That's what we've... That's why our heritage from um, 193 years ago, that's what we stand on. That stands a little dented today, but that's what we, we believe in that, much more than um, forces in many jurisdictions across the world. Part of the reforms I'm going to put in place is about strengthening community policing and building on those, those historic relations. Now, that's not to say that, of course, community policing has been damaged in recent years, resources have been cut back, PCSOs have been reduced. There's a whole load of other issues in there. But that's the starting point, is committing to that in terms of how we, um, how we work together with communities rather than imposing tactics. I'm looking at new ways of delivering, and delivering stop and search in a way that um, builds on global best practice to, um, uh, to do it in a way that builds trust rather than damages trust. Um, we're looking at... Um, I've been out in different um, communities across London um, 
meeting different community groups and community leaders, getting sort of a, sort of a very personal and raw take on their experience and what they see and what they don't see. So I, I'm, I'm desperately committed to this, and I've got a workforce that's committed to it. And I, I'm always an optimist, and I think we've got so many good people who really care about this that we will succeed. Um, so Mark, can I just turn to some perhaps rather less subjective uh, uh, issues? The, the National Audit Office has estimated that nationally, with the new recruits coming uh, through and with workforce turnover, that by 2024, 38% of police officers will have fewer than five years' um, experience. That's up from 12% 10 years previous to, uh, to that. Um, and new recruits in the, in the Met currently account for about 25% of your, your headcount. Is that a good thing or is it a worrying thing in terms of you're potentially losing grey hairs and experience, but you're bringing in newer people who may have a different culture that may accord more with what you're trying to, to achieve? What, what are the upsides and downsides? I think the, the upside is the sort of the officers are, st are joining with the passion and enthusiasm of new recruits. They really care about policing and about policing London. And that, that creates um, enormous opportunity. The challenge for the organisation is coping with that much training and development and coaching in one go. Um, because normally one would be losing recruits, losing experience and, re and sort of building recruits in sort of on a continual basis. We've had a decade or so where we took this sort of experience out and then we've rapidly brought the new recruits in. So because it's been done in that way rather than the normal replacement route, it creates a greater, a greater stretch on the organisation. I see some real um, impact of that on in London in terms of the policing of London because of officers going away for training top-ups and um, moving between different parts of the Met to get the right experience which if it was a small number of people would be, would be manageable. When it's a large number of people, it, it creates challenges for their colleagues and it creates a sort of inconsistency in policing sometimes for Londoners. So notwithstanding the pressure on resources, quite a lot of your budget is going to be going on more training because you've got more raw recruits coming through and then more training at the senior levels, as you mentioned earlier, about yeah. that we, we failed to sort of keep up with, with the army approach to... to uh, uh, to more sophisticated uh, training, because it's going to take up quite a bit of your budget. So that's I, I need more budget for that. I want to. I've, I've been looking back at um, budgets because it's quite confusing. Budgets dropping and then coming back again. And if I go back to 2010-11 and look at our budget in real terms per head of population in London, because London's also grown significantly in that period, as you'll be as you'll be aware. To get back to the same budget per head of population in real terms as we had in 10-11 we would need a 27% uplift in our budget, £878 million. So even though we've got a bigger front line in, in numbers, there are some of that's paid for because they're paid less in real terms, but some of that's been afforded because everything that sits behind them, that HR, leadership, training, vetting, all of those system issues we touched on earlier have been cut really fine. Final question, having heard all of the issues that have been uh, raised and all the criticisms and the reports that there have, uh, have been, what out of all of that keeps you up at night most? Um, I sleep very well, thank you. <laughs> um, the, 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 biggest, um, 
The biggest challenge is, I mean, there, there are many of them. I think just to pick on one that we haven't touched upon, policing needs to succeed through having a precise and focused mission. One of the things that's making it hard for the sort of fantastic majority of men and women in the organisation to succeed is what I would call a blurred and bureaucratic mission that has... As, as, as the work that we need to do has grown and got more complicated, we've loaded extra things on the side of it. And the reason I pulled this one out as the biggest issue is it's, the, it's probably the one we need the most support on. So, for example, um, the mental health demand in policing is, is, mm. is, um, is crippling the front line. I was with a frontline team um, in um, North London a few weeks ago on a Friday afternoon. They started the shift with 25 officers and they had to strike 13 of them off, largely to go to hospitals to watch mental health patients who were, who were waiting in casualty for hospital assessments. This is at a time when in the last year, the place of safety beds in London has dropped by from 1,700 to 1,600. So there's a reduced provision. At the same time, there's more work for police. So, and if I had a relative going through a mental health crisis, however caring, compassionate and and, and sort of enthusiastic as a sort of as a as a caring amateur as a mental health professional a police officer is I'd want that relative to be with a mental health professional not with a um, caring police officer so whether it's about that um, whether it's about some of the bureaucracies we have created which means that sometimes police officers are more worried about getting the paperwork right than they are about confronting violent people on the streets there's a lot we've done to make policing harder than it needs to be it's going to be very hard when you're trying to protect people from gangs or um, uh, sort of uh, exploit exploiters and rapists in private and online. There's lots we have to do that we can't be making it hard and possible. And that's the thing that worries me most of all is getting the space to succeed as opposed to um, uh, uh, sort of being drowned in those other responsibilities. I think all members here would recognise that issue around mental health uh, time uh, on the front line in our own respective uh, constabularies. So it's uh, not unique to, uh, to London. Um, Smart, thank you very much in, indeed. We are, we are very pleased you are back. You've always been very open and engaged with the committee in the, in the past, which we're grateful and um, I'm sure that will continue in the, uh, in the future. And although we have focused on some of the negatives today and you've responded to uh, some of the, uh, the pockets of problematic officers, undoubtedly the vast majority of your officers do an outstanding job to keep us safe, for which we are very grateful and would like you to pass that on from the committee and hope that most of them and you can have as normal a Christmas as possible and perform your yeah. duties as well. So thank you very much for your evidence. Just cross for that. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Committee. Thank you. Order, order. So there you go. I'm not sure what you made of that, but I certainly find it interesting. And uh, yeah, I think he's really on the right tracks with all of this stuff. But I think he's really, really got it. He's really up against it. Uh, you know, some of the stuff he was talking about there in terms of the uh, amount of money that he would need, 27% um, increase. You know, that just isn't going to happen. We all know that's not going to happen. Um, Huge challenges ahead uh, dealing with the mental health stuff. I think he's going to have to get really, really tough with uh, the NHS providers and just say really, really sorry if your organisation isn't sufficiently funded 
uh, to cope with this, then I'm sorry uh, because because uh, our organisation is failing because of it, and and I cannot let that happen. And all the uh, other dysfunctional elements of the wider criminal justice system that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Uh, I was reading a, a really interesting Operation Soteria Bluestone, which is the massive review into uh, rape and sexual offences. I think an academic team looked at many tens of thousands of rape investigations across multiple forces and uh, found that there was all sorts of problems, uh, huge demand, uh, which is outstripping resources, um, huge challenges around technology, which, uh, you know, the company I'm one of the co-founders of, that's what we're partly what we're sort of trying to assist with, not just around rape and sexual offences, but around crime generally, how to manage data, how to deal with it in a much simpler, uh, streamlined way. Um, yeah, huge problems around inexperience, uh, lots of teams with uh, less than two years service. Um, so yeah, that uh, I should. Uh, if you're interested in that, you Google uh, Operation Soteria S O T E R I A Bluestone. A uh, bit of a weird name, but uh, I'd like to know where that name came from. But that report paints uh, really quite an unhappy picture nationally around the issues of serious sexual offences. And um, so yeah, so I think I think Mark uh, has got uh, a lot to get to grips with and many of those things sadly are going to be slightly outside his control particularly the stuff around the wider criminal justice system but that's saying that's where i think uh, police leadership nationally has to um, find its voice and start pushing back against a lot of the things that have caused it to effectively fail in the eyes of the public and many other people so right i'm going to get on with my weekend now on Friday evening. Hope you're having a nice one, keeping warm. For those of you who are working uh, in blue light services, my thoughts are with you. Keep safe and um, yeah, thanks for everything you do and uh, have done. All right, see you later.